and talking to our friends. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. And I'm Danielle. Shout out to Mignolaverse.com, as always. They had a really good April Fool's joke. I don't know if you guys saw this, and if you did, you might not have gotten the reference. So, you know, the BPRD series is ramping up for its big finale right now, and no spoilers, but the series is called The Devil You Know, right? Right. That's the title of this last part of it. So there is this series that maybe we'll get to down the line. It's called Itty Bitty Hellboy. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it's an out-of-continuity children's comic book spinoff based on Hellboy created by Art Balthazar and Franco Ariolani. It's like a little kid's version of Hellboy. And so... For oh, un- awesome. so this is kind of the, I have to explain this joke the long way around. But then so <laughs> Mignolaverse.com they did a promo and it was for Itty Bitty Hellboy the Devil You Know. So it was like putting the Itty Bitty Hellboy characters into this finale of the BPRD book, which is it was a good juxtaposition. Anyway, uh, my make- favorite thing is brands that tease something as an April Fool's joke, right? But really, they're doing like research to see how many people will be like, "Yeah, I know this is a joke, but I would totally buy oh, this yeah, for no, real." I would. Buy- <laughs> so many brands do this. I like makeup brands will put something out like, "Hey, look at this wacky shade of eyeshadow, right. lipstick, or whatever," and people are like. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I would totally buy that. This kind of makes me mad yeah, that no, if you're trying true, to do yeah. this. Isn't, why is this an April Fool's joke? Really, it's very clear that they're just testing the market for something. And it's like the one day they can be like, oh, just kidding. Right, yeah. We're, of course we would never do that if it bombs. <laughs> but then if people like it, they're like, hey, due to the feedback we got from our joke, it's now right, real. Yeah. And it's very obvious what they're doing. But it's kind of my favorite thing in the world because do they think we're dumb? Like, I don't know. Anyway. So now we're going to move on to some listener feedback. Hey, you damn guys, is that a monkey? He's got a gun bang. Hey, we had some feedback on Witchfinder Lost and Gone Forever. Chopper Johnson said, I may be reading this wrong, but the dream scene in Lost and Gone Forever in which Kaipa taps the deer may be referring to Counting Coop. A lot of family groups in the plains were very small, so people generally knew that a killing war could destroy both sides, so significant value was placed in individual acts of bravery or skill in battle. One of the classic examples would be to engage an enemy, but instead of striking them, to just tap them with a hand or a bow before retreating unharmed. So that was like um, one of the highest honors was just to be able to touch your enemy and then escape. Right, that was like an act of bravery. That's pretty fucking rad. Yeah, I really like that, that a lot. And so that's, great. that's what he was doing. So in his land of the dead, he was in his heaven, and he was getting to do that's awesome. stuff like that, which is the highest honor in these traditions. Yeah, so I really love that piece of that's feedback. Fucking cool. So interesting. He also said, with the title of this arc being lost and gone forever, I've got to think that there's a connection to Oh My Darling Clementine, which was published around this time. But with the exception that the singer is a minor, I can't quite figure it out. Yeah, so I thought that was, I didn't even think of that. Lost and Gone Forever, that's a line from that uh, Oh My Darling Clementine song. Yeah, that song is now stuck in my head. Yeah. (laughs) Also regarding that story, NDN Funkadelic also said, The character of Isaac seems to line up with the coyote spirit. Most stories describe coyote as both a wise teacher and also a carefree clown of sorts. He, through his actions, would help and guide people, giving knowledge and lessons. 
sometimes at the cost of his personal safety. The scars, his playfulness, and the nod that he might know more than he lets on gives me suspicion that he might be the coyote in human form. Ah, yeah. Cool. So we talked about the coyote nice. on that episode. This is ex. This is all excellent. I love it. This yeah. is why being in a book club is so fucking awesome. Because yeah. if it's just you reading it. Sure, like, oh, yeah, I get a good story, and I like the art, and I like this. But then if it's a whole group of you, hey, did you know? I have knowledge that you don't have. Hey, did you know? And you get to learn something super cool. It gives the story a new context. It kind of gives it more. It gives the story more dimension, and you kind of, it's, your experience is richer for it. And I I love how everyone can contribute, like, hey, and that makes the story a little bit better, a little bit more, more full. Some people have described the podcast as educational. And I was like, that's a weird, that's some weird feedback, but I do learn a lot of stuff. Like yeah, people, same. you know, yeah. you really get the sense that the writers have personal research into yeah. this stuff. And if you don't know about it, everybody else helps you pick up that thread. It just makes the, the whole experience more colorful and, and really comes alive just a little bit more. Yeah. And every time you read it, you think about, you can all, and you also think about like, oh, the friend you made that you're sharing this information yeah. with, like, oh, I'm <laughs> part of a cool group that. You know, we all come together and we each have our own piece of the puzzle and it becomes like a, a more complete image. I like that. It's kinda like uh it's kinda like a potluck dinner. We're all having with our yeah, friends yeah. and we all bring new food. Yeah. yeah. So it brings it makes it a richer, more fun, yeah. fulfilling experience. Absolutely. And then you get exposed to different cultural things that you didn't know like new words, new yeah. pronunciations, yeah, exactly. new uh, <laughs> our new it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's a really good experience. Mark Tweedo also said, we talked a little bit last time of the order of Lost and Gone Forever and Beware the Ape, which one should come first. And Mark Tweedo, he put our reading order together. He said that the reading order is completely arbitrary. We really don't know what order they go in until the Witchfinder Omnibus comes out in November. I think they work either way. The idea of reversing them intrigues me. It gives Gray a little more London time before diving into the Wild West. Some feedback on BPRD 1946. That's the story we read last week when I posted the teaser. Doo-Wop Apocalypse said, Vivara is one of my favorite tier two supporting characters in the Hellboy universe. Stonecutter Cam said, excited to read something for the first time along with the book club. Yeah, that made me really excited oh. that he's reading it along with us for the first time. It makes me really excited. And Jerry Turnbull said, Vivara and next week, Simon Anders. The 40s books introduced two of the greatest characters. Great to see that Broom was more than just a dusty old professor. And so, yeah, make sure to check out Mike Mignola's art Facebook page that Jerry is moderating over there. Mark Tweedell said, You're finally reading about Vivara. This makes me so happy. The sheer joy in your voice about getting to a story that clearly means so much to you was wonderful to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Friendship. Yeah, and I really do like 1946. That's probably one of my favorites. Matt Strackbine said, BPRD 1946 stands as one of my favorite series yet in the comic book universe. Wow. I reread it on a regular basis. Cool. It has always reminded me of Batman Year One Trevor Broom style. Uh... The standard BPRD and Hellboy stories tend to normalize the weird, whereas 1946 drew a sharp contrast between the real world and the fantastic. Thanks to the art and writing, the story felt very grounded in reality. Then that creepy little girl showed up and gave the readers an all-new context. There may be monsters in the world, but what's with the little kid? From there, the story's pacing was just perfect and gave insight into what is really going on while also building significant emotional drama. I can't imagine myself standing in the same room as Hellboy or Abe Sapien, but I can imagine the horror of opening the door and seeing Vivara standing there with her dolly. (laughs) That's powerful stuff. Anyone who hasn't read beyond this point is going to love where these characters end up. 
but this is one of the best first chapters ever. Yeah, so it's really good to hear from Matt again. Make sure to check him out at Friends of Strackbine on Instagram and the Letter Hack podcast. Yeah, so that was some good feedback. That was good feedback. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I keep thinking about it. Last week's story, I mean, it was, I was really, I really enjoyed that story. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really good. And I, I like I said last week, I really liked Pavara. She was <laughs> a really interesting, fun new character. Yeah. And also you, pretty I think you had, scary. You had brought and, up the juxtaposition of her looking like this little girl in mm-hmm. lace and curls and then but the way that she's talking and the things she's talking about and then she's like slamming vodka and and all this stuff i think yeah. uh yeah I, I have to agree with you that that was really a very interesting choice and it really kind of brightened yeah. the whole story a little yeah. bit you kind of like wait what's this <laughs> it makes you pay attention edgar sid said Gotta say that my favorite little egg to find in Vivara's airplane hangar is the statue of Pazuzu. Pazuzu was made famous in pop culture with the release of the Exorcist movie in 1973, so that statue was in there. That's awesome. With all the other stuff. The story with Pazuzu goes that people fear him because he's a demon king who brings about families through droughts and locusts, but sometimes he's worshipped because he fends off other demons, one of which is Lamashtu, who is a female demon that terrorized women during childbirth and was blamed for the death of newborns. I'd like to think that everything in that hangar has some sort of backstory as to why it was there, so maybe a Russian couple had trouble with stillborns or conceiving and thought that praying to Pazuzu would help, but ultimately turned for the worse. Yeah, so I liked all those little details. I'm sure there are a lot more than we're picking up in all those little statues Uh, and stuff, yeah. I love pages like that where they have all those, like, yeah. hidden artifacts and not the just little in, easter eggs yeah and not just in hellboy just in like comics or movies right or, yeah i do that with my art a lot yeah man it's just it's fun to look at stuff and be like ooh, what is that drew campbell said as for the pronunciation of professor broom's surname i've always just assumed it's a contracted pronunciation that evolved over time similar to words like gloucestershire and such and Worcestershire sauce. I found a link to an interesting discussion of this in a Reddit thread about pronunciation of Broom's name. And so he oh. linked this article. Wow. I started reading that article. Yeah, this article is from The Straight Dope. It says, The English language has some unique conventions, and our pals across the pond are themselves well aware of the humorous possibility of such. It was a Brit who famously suggested that using pronunciation as your guide, it's possible to spell the word fish, G-H-O-T-I. <laughs> Think on it a while and you'll get there. When was the last time you heard a Canadian, for instance, pronounce all three syllables or the second T in Toronto. It's Toronto, more like. Going by spelling, one might refer to the famous Lower Manhattan neighborhood as Greenwich Village. The simplest explanation is that the pronunciation of words shorten over time. It's a mark of our familiarity with them. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah. And I think about that sometimes too, about how where the pronunciation comes from, but that makes so much sense because when you're actually, and there was a study done on, uh, I don't know if this is even connected, but there's there was a study done on if you live in a big city with a high population ratio to the space that you're in, people tend to talk really fast. They talk faster than right. you yeah. would if you lived in sort of like a rural you know, country area with like, there's not too many people. I, I think I've heard about yeah, that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so like, you know, of course when you're, when you're talking, you're like, oh, you're going to go to Greenwich village. You can't, you know, you're not going to green, which village takes too long to say it's Greenwich village. Right. You know, it's, it's, it takes, but then people start just pronouncing it like that on purpose Yeah. because that's the only way they've ever heard it pronounced. Right. So right. it becomes a word. And this is another 
saying I'm not going to get too hung up on this, but when people try and like, you know, get to like, well, that's not a word. Don't use that word. Well, it is a word because people use it. Right, Any word yeah. that people use is a fucking word. <laughs> Language evolves. It's alive. It's not dorm- It's not dormant and dead. It's it's a living thing that evolves the way that our culture evolves. And it's it's a sign of the way that culture is. Time is passing. Get right. over it. Like, time, do you know what I mean? Just yeah. because something is different from when you were little. Anyway, so that's a whole thing. I'm, too. I'm such a nerd. I'll, are you thinking of the same thing I'm thinking of? Go for it. Go for it. All I can think of is Infinity War, where yes, where Thor's like, all words are made up. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, that's a made up. Word. All words are made up. I love it. Oh my god, I super like good. <laughs> Drew Campbell, he was talking about Goetia or Gosha. We were trying to figure out, and we've referenced the Lesser King of Solomon. Yeah, we know all and this. the and the Ars Goetta before. But one thing I thought was interesting is he said. That Solomon got a ring from the Archangel Michael with the seal of God on it, which enabled him to control demons. And so he was saying, I guess Petrov didn't have a ring like that. So he had to pay a steeper price for the benefits he got from right. the demon. Well, we had talked which was, about that he was like bit. doing him or whatever. Show, he was like right. getting on. Anyway, all that weird stuff. He also said Solomon's receipt of the ring was a boy being harassed by a demon who was sucking out his vitality through his thumb. So not quite as horrific as a situation with Bishop Oleg's devil, but a similar concept. And lastly, I have to agree that Vivara is such a great character. I don't know whose idea it was to give her the appearance of a little girl, but it's brilliant. It lends itself perfectly to being creepy as well as providing plenty of opportunity for humor. The secret of her identity and the basic sense of her character are revealed almost surprisingly quickly. Although she definitely appears to have some motives that we don't know about yet. I see parallels with Bishop Oleg's devil's story in that Broom is getting some benefit from a demon, but we don't know yet what his price will end up being. But for now, it's great to see how helpful she is and how good of a team she and Trevor make. And I love how easily Broom accepts that the person he has to work with is a vodka-drinking little girl who plays with dolls and jokes about people hanging themselves. I think that most people in his position would have said, wait, hold up, what the fuck is this? But Broom looks surprised for one panel, then promptly gets down to business. It reminds me of Kate Corgan in a lot of ways. And now it occurs to me that I would love to see some stories set in the 80s with Broom, Kate, and Hellboy teaming up. Of course, that wouldn't really fit with the continuity with Kate. Yeah, but I thought that was some great feedback, tying those things together with the Lesser King of Solomon and that one story, Bishop Oleg's Devil. Jan Niklas said, I think at one moment in the creation of this story, it must have gone like this. Our authors stare at the script as it is now. It's a breakthrough in the franchise, something new and fresh for the Hellboy universe, a story where it is shown again that man is the biggest of all evils, heavy stuff, almost a non-Hellboy story but maybe too dark and depressing, but so good. Still, how can they lift the weights of minds of their readers? Suddenly, somebody says, let's put cyber gorillas in it. (laughs) And this is how true art is created. In all honesty, this is also one of my favorite Hellboy stories, especially since it was a very real story, because this shit did happen. It's bizarre to finally show the Nazis as they were, and not those harmless loonies we got to know. We are reminded the real events exist in our world, and now it also does in the Hellboy universe. We don't need the possessions by evil spirits to do the devil's works. Even then, Dysart reminds us that the Germans and Nazis were normal people who did this or ignored it because it didn't affect them, or because all those cruelties were a small price to pay for a better world. It wasn't, of course, and people like the son of the Mason and Otto's mother existed. The latter didn't even understand what she did wrong, and if I see the current political climate in Germany... 
I'm not sure we ever did. It's sad that Joshua Dysart didn't stay longer. His voice gave the Hellboy universe even more nightmarish worldview than I could think of. And he could have gone to do even bigger things with this mixture of real world drama and the occult doings in the darkest corner of all worlds. Hear you next week. Yeah, I thought that that was some great feedback. Yeah. There's there's also an element to, of, they were dealing with real stuff, but they, I mean, obviously this story put in a bunch of demonic, fantastical elements right, yeah. of like, a lot of make-believe, you know, sure. sci- like science fiction, fantasy stuff. But it's important to note that, and I think that that's where Janie Kloss was getting at, is that these people had the desire to do something yeah. and called upon demons to help them do it and called upon these supernatural forces and researched all this stuff to find power in order to enact the things they already wanted to do. So the desire to do this fucked up shit is just in them already and they're looking for ways and means to make it real and so it is what it is but i yeah i do yeah but it did start with a man-made desire to do evil yeah and then also the the thing about oh well you know in germany at the time a lot of people looked the other way because they thought maybe they either because they agreed with what was going on or they just they didn't want to speak up because they thought, you know, right. they're going to, same thing's going to happen to them, that kind of thing. You see that sort of climate where it's like people agree with what's going on so they don't interfere. But there are some people who are like, hey, I'm kind of afraid of, for my life here. They're going to come for me. So I don't want to make any waves. That's a little more complex, I think, because yeah. it's like, you know, who are we to say? You need to put your life in danger. These people are just trying to survive. Right. So what is? It's not really black and white. It's kind of gray. So that sort of is another thing that makes you think of. And yeah, it's not lighthearted. It's it goes to right. a really dark place. But I think um, sometimes you really can't avoid it if the thing that you're making is a dark thing. Yeah, set in the '40s, especially, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. It's, maybe it's a kind of the artist's way to sort of deal with it. On yeah. Their own. Jason Abaddon said, "The thing about Professor Broom is that as a character, he's first this father figure to Hellboy, Abe, and Liz, but only much later we see him as a man. Sometimes not always the man we'd hope him to be either. As always, characters in this universe are complex and not always positive as everyone else is." And he also was talking about PFC Tim Clark, the guy that was present for HB's arrival. He's like, "Was that one of the alien dudes? Is he the dude from Conquer Worm?" Because remember, there was was that guy chained up there, too. I didn't make that connection. But we see that he died, right? But then, like, I guess, but maybe he really didn't, or... Okay, so I actually was thinking it was and then until he died, and then I was like, well, he died, so I guess it can't be him, but maybe he didn't die? Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. Con de Graff, he said, very d- interesting discussion about Vivara's casting and how everyone hears her voice differently in their mind. Yeah. While an argument could be made for her to have an intimidating, gruff masculine underline her form, I feel that Vivara's flamboyant nature would be better suited by a female actress. Yes, the character is more gender fluid in their design, but to push the demonic voice to the forefront diffuses the visual intensity and lingering threat of when Vivara stands up to Baron Koenig. You know what? You've convinced me. I agree with you. I think having a little girl with a little girl's voice saying all that stuff and doing all that stuff, you'd have to have a really good voice actor, but we've seen that there are a lot of good voice actors who can do children's voices really well, and that would really work. Yeah, well, he talks about this actress, Jodie Comer... She's in this BBC show called Killing Eve, 
And he says that uh, that we definitely need to watch it. He said, Danielle, if you haven't seen this show, we're going to have okay. words. But so I watched the trailer for this last night. And so this uh, this one character, she's like, she seems like she's like the killer or whatever. Sure. But in parts of the trailer, she talks and she does kind of have an accent like that. She ha- Yeah, she has a cool voice. Like I could definitely, sure. watching the trailer, I was like, that's no, that pretty good. That would be an interesting I'll have choice. To sh- I'll have to show that to you Especially later. with her like slamming vodka and saying all this fucked up shit and then like later turning into a demon. You could like layer the little girl voice with like a demonic right kind of a more oh yeah like overlay deep, them yeah kind and of kind like of have um, them... Galadriel when she goes sure, all absolutely, crazy and it's yeah. got those layered voices absolutely in thinking about that scene when I was talking about yeah, that yeah that's sure. great yeah when I posted about their recreation of the baby Hellboy in the army picture Drew Campbell said wow is that even a redrawing it looks almost exact. And so I looked at them, oh, and so they—they they, you can see like little differences. Like on Lady Cynthia, she's slightly different. If you look at the right hand of Doom, it's slightly different. But yeah, I wonder if he took like maybe the pencils and re-inked it or Cause something. I, yeah, because I was like looking, and I was noticing like the the bricks look almost identical. Right. Uh, but then like this one person in the background, he has more detail in his face. Right. Yeah. I wonder. But it makes me wonder if maybe he did go from the original pencils, or if he just eyeballed it and just got it that absolutely good. wouldn't yeah. put it past him yeah. yeah it was really cool sure or maybe not even eyeball just like uh, doing this <laughs> yeah some artists are intensely good at recreating something so right. you, you never know who knows when i posted about jurescu taylor dodderman said one of my favorite hellboy villains i love how he randomly pops up in so many series hopefully someday we'll get a mini featuring him and Matthew Boyne said, can you imagine this uniform in a live action setting? That black Brun- Brunswickers uniform, yeah. you know, that would be pretty cool. That would be cool. If Lemmy was, you know, still, still with us, still with I us, would yeah. definitely have cast Lemmy for sure. Oh, somebody do a Lemmy <laughs> fan creation as yeah. Jurescu. That would be amazing. When I posted about Little Hellboy, Drew Campbell said, gotta love them hot noodles. And yeah, we, we were talking about this. Noodles. So in the little pancake short, he's like, I want hot noodles. Yeah. And they're like, no, you got to eat pancakes. You can't have them for breakfast. And then uh, <laughs> in that 1946, they show him eating those noodles. That's the hot noodles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't make that connection. We I called it spaghetti, that. but there was no sauce, there was as no you sauce pointed out yeah. before we started recording. So you were like, hey, noodles. there's no... Yeah. So. But my, my cousin, they never ate sauce on their spaghetti. Well, then it's just hot noodles, isn't this it? This is hot noodles. <laughs> isn't well, it? I think the sauce is what makes it spaghetti. Well, I mean, like, <laughs> Tell us, listeners, what do you think? Does, <laughs> does you need sauce for it to be spaghetti? Well, their dad was Italian, and so they that's how he made it. Sure, yeah. Wow. Yeah. But yeah. I, yeah, so that's thanks for pointing that out and making that connection. That's I love super that. cute. TechPad De Sequoia said, My sweet, sweet red boy. The, I love the picture Aww. of him running with the chickens. Reminds me of doing the same thing as a kid in Mexico. Yeah. Matthew Boyne said, Danielle's Elizabeth Holmes impression is on point. <laughs> it says also it's... It seems... I didn't mean to make fun of anybody. I, <laughs> yeah. I didn't actually realize just how deep that rabbit hole went. And then I saw the documentary and I was like, ooh. Wow, well, so, yeah. But yeah. He also said, it also seems like you guys like Vivara a lot more than I do. Yeah, so okay. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> you know, she is a villain, I guess. Um, but uh, that, that, I thought that was some good feedback. Well, is she? We haven't... Have, we chronologically have not seen her be a villain sure so we're going to go on to our book club for the week this week we're going to talk about bprd 1947 this was published as a five issue miniseries from july to november 2009 written by mignola and dysart art by gabriel ba and fabio moon we last saw their art on the coffin man and the coffin man 2: the rematch on our hellboy in mexico episode 
We also got the Mighty Dave Stewart back on the interior colors this week and letters by Clem Robbins. We open up in Nuremberg, Germany in the spring of 1947 and we see this train pulling up. And so we get the idea that they have like some, they've caught some Nazis, right? They say that they have these SS officers. And so they're like, all right, get them out. And they open this thing up and they've all been massacred, right? Awesome. And And it's really graphic. Right away, you get the sense of kind of Gabriel Moon and uh, I keep wanting to say Gabriel Moon. It's Gabriel Ba and Fabio Moon. You really get a sense of Gabriel Ba and Fabio Moon's art style. Yeah, you know, right off yeah. the bat, and and how detailed and and awesome their work is going to be for this series. High yeah. five for dead Nazis, gruesome, gruesome dead Nazis. You gonna leave me hanging oh. or what? Nice. <laughs> Sorry about that. I was. Uh... Just mesmerized by admiring this, this art here. <laughs> and this... Mesmerized is not the right word because I mean it's still a horrible looking scene. Yeah, but it's still very, very well done. And this one guy here, he exclaims, "It's a sin!" When he opens up the thing, I was trying to figure out a translation for that. At least that's what the Google Translate told me. And we cut over to an Air Force base somewhere in New Mexico. It's at night, and we see the office of Trevor Broom. So we see his setup here. And all of his artifacts be so we saw his study in the headquarters, the falling water headquarters, but this is his original study, I guess, you know. And there's a lot of cool little details in there. Is this bourbon bottle says old Sh- Shenley? Is that That's an actual I, bourbon? I was trying to figure that out too. <laughs> so it is. It is actually oh, okay. an actual bourbon. How about that? Shenley Industries was a liquor company based in New York City with headquarters in the Empire State Building. Oh, wow. And a distillery in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Shenley Product Company was organized in the 1920s by Louis Rosenstiel. Yeah, so that is a, and they have a different, they old have a lot Shenley. of different. Old Shenley, yeah. And to see if I can find some of that. <laughs> and this little picture right here, that's him and Howard Eaton, Aww. his friend that got killed in the yeah. last one. Yeah. So I thought that that was kind of sweet that he's got that right on his desk. Like the fringe on the lamp here. Yeah. All of this is really nice. And it does look like 1940s style. Sure. You know yeah. what I mean? And he hears a voice, Long Dark Night of Soul, Professor. Dark Night of the Soul is a poem written by a 16th century Spanish mystic and poet, St. John of the Cross. So we had talked about how Vivara, she really likes culture, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And so this little, her little introduction statement is part of a poem. I like that. It's also the name of an album by Sparkle Horse and Dead Danger Mouse. Yeah. Also, yeah, yeah, there was also named off that same thing. That's a great album. Yeah. Very good album. And so, yeah, we see Vivara. I really like how Gabriel Bond, Fabio Moon do her in, in this. Yeah. Somehow it looks more innocent, but creepier. Yeah. <laughs> now, can you explain to me, I, I was kind of confused, who is drawing? Is it is it Gabriel Bar Fabio Moon? Okay, so in the sketchbook, this lends a little bit more clearance. Okay. They go back and forth. On one is doing the pencils and the other one's doing the inks and then the other one's doing the pencils and the other one's doing the inks okay. and they talk about how they had to collaborate to make sure that their certain characters look the same and Broom is pretty shocked to find Vivara in there he said he's like this is a military base for God's sake you can't be here if they find you it'll be an espionage charge and she's like no one's gonna find me have you told him yet your demon child about forces which brought him here and he's like he's just a boy it's not the right time. I know what is on your mind tonight. And she reaches for the bottle. I love that that's the first yeah. thing she does when she comes over to his desk. I take it from that line, like uh, from what we know from Seed of Destruction, 
I don't think Broom ever really told him about who he is or where he's from. Yeah, you're right. Because he didn't he didn't know who Rasputin was in Seed of Destruction. And he's all like, I'm the guy who brought you here. So it was never the right time, right? Yeah. Or did he just never told him? Yeah, that's yeah, interesting. So. That's interesting to think about. They're looking at the file of all these dead fascist prisoners. They've been found dead all over Eastern Europe. And she's like, you know who's doing this. And we get a flashback to 1946 where they met Baron Koenig and he's like, men will pay all men. This is the guy who's going to remember. He said that he, you know, because they tortured Jurescu's family and they subjected uh, this one bride to have all her blood drain and all this stuff that everyone was going to pay for that. Whoever drew this did a good job with the owl. I like that. Yeah. So, you know, the professor, he's telling Vivara that she's got to go. She's like, he got to, you know, you're turning out to be more human than I had hoped. And then we hear a voice, right? Professor, who are you talking to? Yay. And we see little Hellboy in here with his little pajamas. I love his little pajamas. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so fucking adorable. I was just like, oh. And his hand is so huge. It's so Aww. interesting to see, like, this little kid with this giant hand. And the professor's like, no one myself. Did I wake you? He's like, let's go get us a glass of milk and try to get some sleep, shall we? And he takes him back to his room. Really cute moment, yeah, yeah. for Hellboy to come in here. You get a sense also of how much he's grown because in the last one, he just seemed kind of like a toddler running around. Baby. Yeah. And on this one, he's already kind of like, you know, he's an older kid. We cut over to the professor and he's talking to Margaret Lane. We last saw Margaret Lane in the Midnight Circus. She showed Hellboy the Pinocchio book. They're talking about how all these Nazis have been found dead. The professor says he's making a statement. And she's like, I don't see what the trouble is. You know, this isn't the most pressing concern. I have to agree with her. I don't see what the problem is. And the professor's like, give me some agents. I need some for deployment. And uh, she's like, you know, they're not they're not going to care about some dead Nazis. I like how she's she keeps trying to she's trying to close this down. Like, we don't need to do anything about it. She keeps rebuffing him with all these different excuses like, well, um, you know, I don't see what the problem is. Congress doesn't care about dead Nazis. We should focus on this instead. Let's. He, she tries to redirect him and blame it on whoever else. And she's like, well, maybe it's not the best use of our resources. She's right. going to another yeah. thing. She's trying to yeah. come up with as many different things. And he's like, okay, enough. Just do what I said. And then she's like, well, you weren't there. He's like, what? I was in London during the blitz. You weren't. You really can't understand what it was like. The dead Nazis and stuff. That's just the world balancing itself right. out. That's, yeah. that's a good thing. And I love that she takes it there. I love that she's not afraid to take it there with him. And I also like the art on the bottom left panel when she's looking at him. Yeah, whoever whoever yeah. drew that, it's it's super great. And um, it's very expressive. I was a big fan of her standing up like that and being like, dead Nazis is good. Why are you focusing right, on this? Yeah. Even after all of the excuses I gave you, which all seem like legitimate reasons not to go after this case or whatever, really at the heart of it, she's like, I saw this shit firsthand. Right. You don't understand what what that was like. This is actually the correct way things should be moving. People should murder Nazis. And so she's having kind of an emotional moment here. And I like that we get that little insight into... She's not just a little throwaway character. Yeah, exactly. You know, I could see her being cast as... um, Who did... Oh, my God. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. Who did the... She was... Hanging out with Captain America, and then she's British, and oh, she's... Oh, uh, Hayley Atwell. Yep, Hayley Atwell. Oh, yeah, I love her. While I agree with everything that she says, <laughs> and I do think that dead Nazis is a great thing, but I think for Trevor, or for Broom, is... Because he and I on our first name basis. Uh, <laughs> no, a little respect, because he's a professor. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, Professor Broom. 
I, I think it's it's not so much that he wants to save Nazi lives, is that he wants to kind of end this particular threat because it would spread past the Nazis. And exactly, for, she doesn't know yeah. that he's doing this for a different reason. Right. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's more like it's not about saving the Nazis; it's more mm-hmm. about saving ourselves. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And he's he's she doesn't know why he's investigating this. Exactly. Yeah. It's for it's for a broader purpose. It's like, look, there's actually this like you know it's his paranormal kind of thing going on and we have to we have to investigate it because we don't really know the whole situation it could get out of hand really easily and it's very but she doesn't get that all she sees are dead nazis and i mean it's so close to when it happened right and literally just ended and so he sees the bigger picture and he sees well there's there's actually a deeper more pressing matter at hand that we have to deal with and he's not just going to defend nazis he's going because you know he's got to deal with this fucking guy yeah so yeah that's yeah. but totally agree 100 and Kill those Nazis. yeah <laughs> well it's also expresses the weight that's on his shoulders is that he's getting criticism from within his oh, own yeah. office and he still has to even what it looks like is bad he's like well i know this looks bad but you have to trust me i have my reasons and so it's it, it puts so much pressure on this character and it right. really gives us a deeper insight into what he was dealing with this huge burden all these years yeah. and when we finally see him in seated i say finally but seat of destruction is the first story you know but going back but, you know yeah, and rereading no. seat of destruction yeah. you can see like the years the toll that oh, it's yeah. taken on him yeah. and it's yeah. stuff like this this kind of stress must really eat at you from the inside out so we're getting a lot of character building here yeah that was yeah. one of the things that really spoke to me in 1946 and i talked about it last week was all these moments that you're just like, oh, this sucks. Yeah. Like his friend died and he was trying to help this woman and then they killed her son anyway. Yeah. But He's yeah. seen some shit. That's what they, I think they try to do this with uh, Alfred uh, from the Batman comics right. and stuff. Oh, in some yeah. stories you see like, oh, he was a spy. Right. He was a he did all this British cool spy stuff, yeah. and he did all this cool stuff. He you know, I think yeah. that just makes the story that much more interesting that we get all these different characters. And having these different titles. Yeah. It's not like the big two. They do the different titles just because they want you to buy more fucking books. Right. These yeah. different titles exist because we want a deeper, richer yeah. story for these characters. We want to know about it. We, you know, we want to read about that. And so that's something that I find really special about. It's not just another title for to have another title's sake. It's the story needs to be told, and it's it's yeah. good stuff. I like yeah, it. Totally agree. Before we go on, I just want to mention the Blitz that she refers to. That was a German bombing campaign against Britain in the early 1940s during the Second World War. The term was used by the British press and is a German word for lightning. I actually did know that because that's one of the few things I did learn in in (laughs) great history. (laughs) And so we meet our team here for the book. We've got Jacob Stegner. Survivor of Normandy, declined for intelligence service after war due to poor psychological evaluation. Wow. Transferred to the BPRD. So the Western Allies of World War II launched the largest amphibian invasion in history when they assaulted Normandy, located on the northern coast of France on June 6, 1944. The invaders were able to establish a beachhead as part of Operation Overlord after a successful D-Day the first day of the invasion. And so a lot of people died during yeah, that battle. Really, And intense. there's it's been depicted in a lot of ways. And we'll talk about it a little bit more later. And not only did he survive Normandy, but this, you know, particular snapshot we've got of him here when he's being introduced, he's at the liberation of a very specific camp. Right, yeah. And this is a really famous image. And so 
seeing all that and right. being there for that, you know, that's that that's part of his. We kind of are getting a real idea of where he's yeah. at and what he's seen and what he's been there for that. And that's that's fucking yeah yeah. If you gone through D Day and then you see this, yeah, that definitely will fuck you up. Yeah. Well, it's it's not even so much that it's it's fucked him up, but he's seen exactly the toll that it's taken on all of these people. So he has an idea of the war and the Nazis that most people don't have firsthand physical knowledge of that. He he was there and he witnessed it. And so he's kind of, we already have an idea of where he's coming from on yeah. this. He'd probably be in the same mindset as Margaret right? and be like, yeah, dead Nazis sounds great. Can we help this guy out somehow? <laughs> you know, anyway. We've also got Simon Anders, Merchant Marine, spent 24 days in South Pacific alone in a lifeboat after a ship was shot out from under him. He's not military, so no disability. Applied for service after the war and got sent to us. Frank Russell, Bomb and Mine Disposal, African Theater. And so this is a reference to the North African campaign of the Second World War. This took place in North Africa from June 10th, 1940 to May 13th, 1943. And it included campaigns in the Libyan and Egyptian deserts and Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. And I think he's going to mention Tunisia later. The campaign was fought between the Allies, many of whom had colonial interests in Africa dating from the 19th century, and the Axis powers. So for his good record, he was offered an officer position with any intelligence agency after the war was over, and it said... He chose us. He chose to go to the BPRD. Right. So he has seen some shit right, yeah. Yeah. that makes, you know, he's like, okay, what's this, this paranormal what shit do. going on? Yeah. yeah, I got to find out about this shit. And so he's has an interest in this already. So the fact that he wants to be there says to me that he already yeah. is not going to blink when he sees something. He's right. like, whoa, what's going on? It's a ghost. <laughs> he's going to be like, all right, let's figure this ghost shit out. You know, I dig that. And. That's a Scooby-Doo thing. That's what I thought. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we've got Gabriel Ruiz, U.S. Marine Raider, Jungle Warfare Specialist. Attempted unsuccessfully to sue the Marines for discrimination. He refused to retire from service, transferred to the BPRD. Jeez. And so Jungle Warfare, I didn't know about this. I, I mean, I've heard of Jungle Warfare before, but in the jungle, there's a lot of special techniques that the military needs because of the jungle has a variety of different effects on military operations. You've got dense vegetation, jungle terrain, jungle environments are also very unhealthy. Well, yeah, there was this thing called like jungle rot. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise, the terrain can make it difficult to deploy armored forces or any other kind of forces on a large scale. So not only has he been through that kind of stuff, there's people in the trees, and but stuff. then it's there's cool also the, this discrimination thing too, yeah. right? So yeah. that that adds something to his character as well. Oh yeah, it's where a bit, he's coming from? Is yeah, he's he's trying to achieve some objective, and he's you know being held back by like racism or discrimination right. or whatever it was, and so that's uh, being transferred to the BPRD. I wonder if he's got kind of some resentment. Right. You know, maybe for like where he's being placed or something. I don't know. It's a bit of a damaged crew, Margaret says. (laughs) She's like, we've got plenty of academics on our pool list. And he's like, not unless they're librarians with machine guns. I need some guys who have seen combat. She's like, what about this guy who was lost at sea? Can you imagine how crazy he is because of that? And he's like, we need them, Margaret, all of them. And so. Well, I don't know if it's so much that he's quote unquote crazy, but just like. 
you know, she's saying, oh, he's been through enough. Right, right. Leave him alone. She keeps trying to find all these squirrely ways to get around yeah, the subject yeah. that she doesn't want this operation to happen. We meet these guys. We see them arrive in, in France. I love the hero walk shot. I'm a oh, sucker yeah. for it. <laughs> Our this would be a great way to introduce them. You had to see them all together. <laughs> Our ragtag band of damaged boys looking cool, all walking in a line shoulder yeah. to shoulder like in Tombstone or whatever. Or in any astronaut <laughs> movie, really, I guess. I was thinking of uh, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, uh, sure. Oh, yeah, whatever. there you yeah. go. Which, I have never which, seen that. Which was, um, I think, was ripped off from Goodfellas. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of movies that do this particular yeah. shot, right? And I, I'm always a sucker yeah. for it. I like it. What are some of your favorite ones in the all book club members send us the hey damn guys tell us oh what's what your, your favorite, favorite walking shot <laughs> your, your slow-mo walking shot sure the hero, the, the the, hero i walk. guess the one that i think of right off the bat is the one from Gar- the first guardians of the galaxy nice. where he's all uh, yawning and it's all kind of like good. it tries to be cool someone's but, got a wedgie yeah exactly sure. <laughs> Ooh, and there's that one in swingers where they talk about how they ripped it off. Reservoir Dogs ripped off Goodfellas, and then they rip it off. for. Oh, yeah. That's nice. that's a good one, too. At this point, it's a trope. You can't really rip it off of anyone specific. Right. Oh, yeah. Okay, so when I say rip off, I don't No, no, mean, no. I, I just mean I the, mean, yeah. Yeah, I just mean, yeah, pay, pay homage. Sure. I, I mean, at this point, it's such it's such a pervasive. <laughs> you see it in so many different movies. It's just you use that shot whenever you want it. And like you said, now they use it as a, as a joke. Right, To yeah. kind of to the juxtaposition of like or on Deadpool where they're playing X gonna give it to you absolutely oh, absolutely <laughs> that it works better as a joke now anyway and so they learned about the summer of 1771 Koenig hosted a party in a chateau on Lake Annecy and it's La Danacy I guess in French right but this is actually a really uh, a real place they know the party happened because a young composer named De Grigny was present and so he wrote this opera about it, and when they showed it, the work offended its audience to such an extent that the mob burned down the opera house. And we don't see nice. it at all. We just see nice. the, the, the expression on people's faces as they're watching it. They it, burned it down on opening night. It yeah. really made me wonder how fucked up it was that we only see the reaction. <laughs> right. Well, it, I mean, it doesn't even have to be fucked up in this time in this time period, it's probably just something like she showed her ankle and then everyone freaked out. <laughs> yeah, but not, not burning opera house down freak out. Because, I mean, you know, they showed the, the bloody Nazi corpses just a few pages sure, ago. Yeah. Right, and yeah. now we're seeing... But I, I love this shot. I mean, this reaction shot was... Yeah, I mean, maybe they were just like, well, we've good. already done some blood and guts. Let's do some uh, reactions. Right. <laughs> and um, we always get the sepia tones, right, when we sure. see these oh, yeah. flashbacks. Um, well, it's... it's uh, that's the... Um, the whole old school horror thing of like it's cooler if you don't show it because right. the audience makes oh, it up yeah. in their mind oh, yeah. sort of a thing and then you're, oh. you're able to imagine just the worst yeah 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 no i mean yeah leaving it, it up to the audience because that's actually a really good effective sure way to do things so they've got to go find this chateau and see what evidence they can dig up and so we see all the guys they're hanging out in the bar and they're kind of talking about like what the heck is this mission we're going to go look at a party from 200 years ago this one guy, Ruiz, he's saying, well, I'm in France on the government's dime, so I don't care, you know. <laughs> but we see Anders there, and he's like, he's the only one trying to actually get shit done. Like, all of them just want to drink and party. And he's like, hey, you know, they arranged for us to go to this library and get some research. And, you know, I'm probably going to go do that. And they're like, oh, we can just wait till tomorrow. Party's 200 years old. Whatever's left, it'll be there tomorrow. I love the, you know, after he says the library, like one guy's like, a library <laughs> seriously dude 
And so Anders is like, I'm going to go check it out. You know, they made plans for us. One of us should go. I really uh, identify with <laughs> with sure. that. And it's like, well, you know, one of us should probably do it. I'll be the one to go to go check it. You out. were the one in school when you were given a group project <laughs> with all your partners. None none of the other people in the group did any work at all. Right. You did all the work and handed it in. And so we see Anders leave and walk out through France. And this is all just really beautiful. I mean, the way that they do all this. Yeah, it's good stuff. The colors are really nice. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. I just really like to look at these panels. So I thought this was a little unusual. This bird that's like, does it have like a chain? No, that's on, it's perched on a sign. But then it flies up and it looks like Oh, that... yeah, it is chained to the thing. That's horrible. Yeah, I was wondering what that is. It's awful. I guess it rings the bell when it does that. And so people know that someone's coming by. That's so, awful. So you get the sense that like people are scared or something. They have these warning. They First, they have this bird warning the device or whatever here. Do and not then, like that at all. And then Anders sees this written on the door. And so this is, it's in French, but it's 1 Peter 5, 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So that's pretty... And he's trying to read that. And as he's trying to, to read that, like a bat flies by and like a black cat and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, it's just really setting up this almost comically ominous, you Bats know... are awesome, though. And they're super cute. And so he gets to the library. And again, this is all just beautifully done. He goes up to the to the librarian and he says, I was told you'd have some books picked out for me. And this guy takes out this really rad looking book yeah, that looks, it looks so good. awesome. Yeah. Like, you know, some good ancient. Some good shit in there. Yeah, for real. We cut back to three other guys and they're all telling their war stories. Russell, he mentions the Tunisian campaign. This was part of a series of battles that took place in Tunisia during the North African campaign, which I talked about a little bit earlier. And Ruiz talks about the Solomon Islands campaign. This was a major campaign of the Pacific War of World War II. And then they're like, um, they ask Stegner, what's the hottest spot you found yourself in? And we get this bottom panel that is just fucking crazy. And so this panel is a tribute to Into the Jaws of Death, which is a photograph taken on June 6, 1944 by Robert F. Sargent, a chief photographer's mate in the United States Coast Guard. And so there is a photo that's like almost this exact same um, image, except with less of like, you don't see people explicitly getting shot. But if anyone's seen like Saving Private Ryan, they do this, they do a shot like this, and it's just really gruesome and horrific. It's like when the boats are coming up and then the, that gangplank lowers. And right. They just start mowing them down. The The other guys are like, hey, you know, I got this war story. I got that war story. And then they're asking this guy and he's just like, all he can think of is this really horrific thing that he went through. And you can see like it cuts over to a flashback that he has and like pretty much everybody's dead except for him. And then he even, this guy grabs onto him and, and is like, kill me, kill me, and He's all this kind of stuff. He's missing an arm. His his intestines are floating in the yeah. water. It's the most fucked up thing you've ever seen. Uh, I also like the detail of how his um, his rifle is still wrapped in plastic. Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't even yeah. notice that. Yeah. And he's like, I don't like this game. And I'm tired of bumping gums. So that's just like talking. Bumping gums is just like talking and talking. But yeah, he doesn't want to have anything to do with this. He's not trying to glorify. He clearly had like a different experience than these other guys had. Yeah. 
And then um, my suspicions are confirmed here. Frank talks about like, ah, oh, saw some weird shit. Yeah. Saw some weird shit. You think, did you guys see anything weird? And that's why he wanted to be in the BPRD because he's right, like, what's all yeah. this weird shit about? That's good. But the rest of um, Maurice, he's like, I don't even know what I saw. Every day was strange. Has been ever since. We cut over to Anders and he's still researching in the library and he sees this um, flyer here, and it's a flyer to that party that, or it's a flyer to that crazy opera that DeGrenny wrote. And it says, Carnival of the Condemned. And that's a really cool image. We'll see that image. We'll see Mignola's version of it on the next cover. And then he gets approached by this woman, right? She starts talking to him. She knows exactly what he's reading about, too. Yeah. Right? She's like, oh, are you reading about DeGrenny's opera? So she talks about what happened after they burned down the opera house. He was forced before a trial. All his works were destroyed. Everything his mind had conjured in his lifetime was deemed too horrible to exist. He was chained in the basement of an asylum and left to die. Only for making art. It is a sad story, Non. See, that to me is like those people who are like trying to undermine the seriousness of something by being like, oh, they burned down the opera house because just because he made art. Well, obviously, it's not just because he made art. Right. They didn't, they don't, you don't burn down someone's house every single time someone piece, makes any sort of piece of art. Obviously, he's doing something else fucked up. Right. It's not the whole story. So, I, you know, you hear that a lot now in the discourse online. If you're, I, I'm probably too online for this, but it's one of those things where, yeah, you know, you see it a lot. Like, oh, so just because he said words, all of a sudden he's bad right like, no it's not just because he said words that the words that he said are fucked up that's why i'm disagreeing with i'm disagreeing with what he's saying not the fact that he's talking anyway rant over <laughs> that was a good one <laughs> <laughs> andrews is like i don't know i'm not much for art and she says a man who does not care for art is a man who is dead and it cuts over to him he has his flashback of himself in the boat i yeah. thought this was so good and he's like no no, I'm alive. Yeah. That's yeah. just like a really cool moment. I just love the the sense of this character and what he's been through. Yeah. Really intense. Yeah. It, you see him in the boat right there and he's like, no, no, I'm alive. He probably was like like hallucinating that he'd been rescued a few times. And right. Did you ever see the, um, God, what was the name of this documentary? I probably haven't seen it. It's it's about this guy who's like went mountain climbing and um, he fell uh, his, is this the one who cut his arm off? No, 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 no. Okay. He, he and his friend were mountain, we were climbing up this mountain, and his friend slipped, and he fell, and he had to cut the rope. Oh no, wait. He was his friend cut the rope. He was the one on the end of the rope that got cut, and he like dropped, and he was able to climb down the mountain and make it back to wow. his base. But um, oh, it's gonna kill me for not knowing the name of it. But um, when they went to go when they were filming the documentary they were doing um, reenactment type scenes and they had him up on the mountain and all of a sudden he started freaking out because he's like, did I make it off this fucking mountain? Oh, he thought he was still, he had been yeah. there the whole time. Jeez, yeah. And this, and this was like decades later. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's intense. I wonder, yeah. I didn't even get that kind of read off that portion. I did think it was a, a really crazy flashback, but yeah, I didn't even think about that. That's incredible. She's asking him if he's been to the Chateau yet. And she's like, you must see it by moonlight, Simon. It's a wonder. And he's like, you know my name? And she's like, come with me. Will you let me show you? And he's like, okay. <laughs> she knows what he's reading about. She knows his name. She knows all this weird stuff. And uh, I get the impression that he's sort of spellbound. Right. It's like the bit. glamour or whatever. Yeah. 
And then, um, I just love the colors on this page. They as sort she, of creep oh in God. panel yeah. by panel. It's really, yeah, it really does do that. You're absolutely right. It kind of leads into it color-wise on the previous page, but it's so beautiful, this kind of like misty quality that yeah. this uh, Port of France has. It's uh, just really well done. The art is breathtaking. Uh, I love uh, Dave Stewart's ability to adapt his style to whatever art style he's working on, yeah. but still yeah. maintain his same personality. It is fucking brilliant. I mean, really. We cut back over to the bar and the old guys, the, the kind of locals at the bar, they were like, hey, we heard you guys mention the chateau. And they're like, yeah, we're going to be going there in the morning. These two old men, they say, you were soldiers in the war. So we help you out with some advice. You should forget about the chateau. You will not find much there. That place has been burned down for a hundred years. Whoa. Whoa. And we see... Uh, we <laughs> like see, yoink, Scoob. And we see Anders and the woman. They're going up to it and it's there, right? It's there in all its, it's glory. Great. And it's in like this hazy color... The, magical the pink yeah. and the blue is very right yeah and, uh, his brushes sorry i'm like marveling over his photoshop brushes i was gonna say like as soon as i turned the page i was just like whoa this is an amazing shot but and did I, you notice that it says uh, fabio down here it says fabio and then it has a moon next to it yeah so maybe on okay uh, hey, so, so maybe for that so maybe this issue is fabio moon i wonder if they go back and forth on issue maybe one does one issue and one does the other issue I like that he signed it, though, so that I know who to attribute this yeah. to and be like, Fabio Moon did such a good job on this such and yeah. such. And then so we get this cover, and I love this Mignola cover to it's chapter two. It's the thing two. you were talking and about. And it's that flyer. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. Mignola's version of that flyer. This demon has this key. The guy is standing in front of it, but yeah. Yeah. Anders and the woman, they approach the chateau in all its glory. And, you know, it immediately, like, you get the sense that they've gone back in time, right? Everybody is dressed in these period outfits, and the chateau is lively with this party. All the lights are on. There's all these people milling around, and they're all very extravagantly dressed. And her little librarian outfit kind of transforms into, but it keeps the same, like, pattern. And the same color, color too. I love that. Yeah, and her hair kind of goes up. And Anders is like, I don't think I should be here. She's like, why think at all? It's much more exciting to just be now with me, surely. She reaches out her hand for him, and so he goes with her. It's kind of like in a little trance, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I mean, the colors are just amazing when you go inside the chateau and all the detail of the all the candles on the chandeliers and you know there's just all this big party going on and all the waiters have these weird animal masks yeah you notice that Mm -hmm. there's like a pig mask and this one's like a cardinal i think there's like a goat mask down here i like how this this opening shot of the party like the one you're talking about with all the candles but i also like how it's shot from like a balcony kind of thing Oh, you're you know, right. So yeah, you, you kind of you. It's like you, things are cut off, but it's like still um, shows a sense of like you know death and grandeur. Yes, yes. And we see that somebody is watching, right? We see that um, this figure is standing over on the balcony, and we see this one person assault one of these waiters. She's like, "You brushed against me, Cretan. Never touch me!" And she slaps his mask off. And he's like this withered old man underneath or something, right? Like a mummy or something. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of those weird old vampire things that the Marquis had Mm -hmm. in the Universal Machine. Do you remember that? And they were like... So she's trying to get him to drink some wine. 
And he's like, nah, I'm good. Right. And, and then someone comes up and she's like, oh, who's this guy? <laughs> and they start talking about, oh, he's so handsome, all this stuff. And then so um, she's introduces this uh, new woman as her sister. Right. So well, the, the, the one that we've already met in the yellow or, uh, well, I guess they're both in yellow. in yellow. But the one with the dark brown hair, that's Katerina. Right, and then this one with the uh, is here. with the lighter brown hair is Annalise. Just want to point. I like how like when she hands him the wine and she's like, you know, come on, you don't want to seem out of place, and he like takes it and he just sets it on the table. Right? Yeah, he doesn't drink it. Well, I mean, it's like I've I've been in places like here, drink this. I'm like, okay, thanks. <laughs> Set it off to the side. And then uh, it cuts back to he's like, yeah, sure, why not? Let's okay, it's cool. Cuts back to these other three guys. One of them is singing a song about Hitler. Yeah, so, so that's interesting. <laughs> I haven't seen old Hitler in a hell of a time. It's a soldier's song, right? And I looked this up. I'll probably cut a clip of people singing it in oh, okay. here. Okay. And so while all this is happening, this was a, a song that soldiers just sang right. out there to kind of pass the time. And one thing I want to point out is Stegner. He gives some money to this old woman that's out there. There's this creepy old woman. She's like got these crazy eyes and all these cats around her. He gives her a little bit of money. So Russell, I'm sorry. So yeah, Russell's the one singing it. But he says, screw him. He's no cousin of mine. And so in all the things that I read, the line is, fuck him. He's no cousin of right, mine. Right, and you can't put that yeah, in there. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting how they kind of censored it. But right. I'll put a version of that song in there. And again, it's like kind of a creepy moment. There's a lot of mist and you get the sense that something supernatural is also sure. happening with them too. Yeah, but Stegner, he comes over and he's the only one to give money to this old creepy woman. There is kind of an area effect yeah. going on. It's kind yeah. of a... We cut back over to the chateau and the clock strikes midnight and everything goes off. And so they're all like, the festival, time for the festival. They Uh-oh. all get all super pumped to go outside. So they're all running outside, and she's like, oh, come on, Simon. This is what you've been waiting for. It's a very surreal. He looks over all the servants and butlers. They all have um, animal masks, like you had pointed out earlier, right. like goats and birds and things like that. And so they all run outside. He drops his notebook on the floor right? because they're rushing him outside. The ladies are flying around. And laughing. Where have we seen this before? <laughs> Looking familiar. Yeah. They're swirling around. And now start, there's owls flying around. They take Anders up they with them up into with the them. air. And they're like, doesn't it just get more and more wonderful as they're like swirling around? This yeah. is so crazy. Yeah. And so now you see all the birds and the owls and the bats. And I mean, you know what's going on now yeah. at this point. I mean, very, in, very well done. And a really great shot, too. Super just good, like the, yeah. The way the... The clouds are swirled around as they're all swirling up to the sky. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but, you know, a lot of shades of darkness calls uh-huh. when they all got swept up and Hellboy got swept up also <laughs> with them. Oh, man. So now we cut over to the army guys. They're waking up, and this guy that was singing, Frank Russell, you know, he's all hungover. He's, like, all still yeah, in the bed. Yeah, really he The other guys are already dressed and everything, and they're like, all right, we, we got a situation. <laughs> Anders didn't come in last night. I went to the library, and the librarian said he never showed up. 
And so we saw him go in the library and everything. So all that shit didn't happen. And Russell's like, maybe he got lucky with some broad. It happens even to the most sober of us. (laughs) (laughs) So now this other guy. Reese. Yeah, he's speaking up just now when... Maybe he should have spoken up last night, but he didn't. Right. Because he was the one saying, oh, let's go find some girls. Let's have some drinks. Now he's like, oh, we shouldn't split up like that. We're supposed to be a team. We're oh, here to do Stegner. a job. Yeah, Stegner, Stegner, yeah. yeah. He's like, we're here to do a job. All this shit. Like, where were you yesterday? Right. You, If you had said all this last night, I don't know. But we also see, like, he was the one that was at Normandy and, like, you yeah. know, saw all yeah. that shit. So maybe, like, I don't know. He started to get irritated with him. He was like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I'm tired of bumping gums or whatever right. he said. Yeah. So maybe... Maybe after Andrews left, he started to feel like, man, maybe sure. I should have, sure, maybe sure. I should have, you know, we, we should have stayed on mission or whatever. And so this guy who's all hung over, I'm, I'm never going to remember any of their names. It doesn't matter. The guy who's <laughs> hung over who was singing about Hitler. He's like, ah, it doesn't matter. I scratched my ass. It's fine. And so... Uh, we get the sense that he's a real character, right? He's all drunk and he's, he's pissing, all peeing and just, scratching his yeah. butt. And so uh, so these guys are like, well, no, he'll turn up. He'll turn up. And so then the guy who was at Normandy is just already running down the stairs. Right. Yeah. And we cut back over to with Anders and these two sisters. And we oh, see this man. is clearly like some witch's Sabbath. Oh, right? queen of the night, goddess of the crossroads. Who's they're it going to be? They're saying a lot of very familiar things that we've heard before. Gorgo Mormo, moon of a thousand forms. And we see this statue. And um, this statue is a statue of Hecate. We also saw this statue in The Sleeping and the Dead. And I think we might have seen it in some other stories. So listeners, let us know where else it's shown up. I also like all the uh, goats and owls and stuff. And there's a, there's even a big old frog right. d- dancing around. <laughs> I love him. He's great. And we saw, that also reminds me of Darkness Calls, where we saw those three people that turned into... A frog, a cat, and a bird. Well, it's also like all their familiars and stuff. You know how all the witches had their own familiars when they were flying through the air in that other story. I'll never remember the name of it. And I remember in Darkness Calls and on that episode, I also mentioned that painting, The Witch's Sabbath. You know, that's kind of reminiscent of all this. And they're all kind of crowding around this statue of Hecate. And they're saying all these things that we've heard before that allude to Hecate. And that, yeah, and as we turn the page, they're like, Hecate, they tell us, right? Yeah. Shocker. Witch queen, Gorgon-eyed Hecate. I like the way she talks about her. She says, uh, the source. She lives in a tomb far from here and she never leaves it. But once a year, she appears to us who gather in her name across the earth in the secret places. So... Uh, she's revered abo- above all others on this night, and you're honored to be here and all this stuff. And you wanted to see what this guy saw. Uh, you wanted to know this information, so right. here you go. You're so getting that all of it in your face. So that is kind of what he saw, right? And we hear a voice. Degrini, is this one a poet as well? And so we see Baron Koenig. We last saw him in the last episode in 1946. And he's got his little vampire crew here, right? Yeah. They they talk about how they researched old like Russian dress and stuff like that to get yeah, the costumes for these cool. characters. And they're very cool looking. They're all in black, you know. Really do. Um, classic looking vampires. And this one woman, she says, why must you children spoil things by bringing humans among us? So they're like, um, we'll keep our secrets close. This one guy says, you have not been so successful at this in the past. As they're talking to Anders... 
and they're having this debate about whether he should be there. Well, and this guy is saying like, oh, people will just dismiss him as, right. you know, he's a lunatic. It doesn't or matter, yeah. right? Yeah. So Andrews brings up that he has information on Koenig, right? And he talks about how Koenig is raising hell in Europe. He's slaughtering all these prisoners of war, leaving corpses out for everybody to find. You've been made by one of your own. Hell, they've even pinned a name on him. They call him Koenig. And so that's where they realize that he's talking about that guy. And so the rest of them are like, oh, you wouldn't say Baron Koenig. So then they kind of are turning on him a little bit. Like how one of the, I guess his his lack his posse, yeah, says the human has suddenly become interesting addition to our gathering. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. That's a great little line. And I was, but it's one- also kind of scary because he's in it now. Oh, yeah. yeah. If he yeah. had played dumb, maybe they wouldn't have paid attention to him. But now they're kind of like, all right, wait a minute. Yeah. This guy knows something. That's a little. Yeah, you're. I don't right. know. That's it a little. I probably would have kept my mouth shut. <laughs> And so we cut back over to the rest of the guys there in this boat, and they're going out there to the chateau to look for Anders. And they've got this weird little guy uh, in the boat, the yeah, little driver. Weird. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was interesting. We see this little guy; he's kind of driving the boat for them. And this this little thing where he's handing out crosses to each man. He's like, "Here, it's one for each of us." Uh, Stegner. Stegner says, "I'm Jewish." Right. And on <laughs> you know, at first you're like, "Ah, it's it's funny. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's a good joke." But then also you think about like the context of where he was in World War II. He was there oh, yeah. for the liberation at that mm. camp. And oh so my God, you're he's right. fucking Jewish, man. Right, yeah. Damn. So that's kind of super right. fucked up. And it adds just a little bit more of a, oh, yeah. fuck to that I didn't even think about character. that. It also reminded me of Lost and Gone Forever where... Morgan Kaler was like, you put two sticks together and that drives away the demons sure. and you don't call that magic. So yeah. here we kind of get another sense of that of like, he's like, well, I guess it can't hurt. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's a tool, you know, sure. to be used. And this other guy's like, oh, silver bullets. <laughs> oh, that's stupid. But right. like, it's one of those, if only you knew right. kind of guys. Yeah. And, yeah. and so it's, uh, oh, what the fuck is that? Dramatic irony or something. Right. It's good. And they get to the chateau and it's like a total wreck, right? It's just ruins. Where when Anders got there, you know, it was all beautiful and full of life. And um, they just do a really great job. The art in this book is incredible. Everything is old and has cobwebs on it and dust on it as though it's been there for right like a super long time, hundreds of years or yeah. something, and except the notebook. Yeah. So that's a cool magic thing. Even even like the mask that got knocked off the guy's face. Yeah, yeah, yeah we exactly. see that from that earlier event. And these oh, are all I love details that. that we would yeah. remember. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, and so they find Andrew's notebook, and a little photo comes out of there, too. And so Stegner's like, we let Andrews come here alone? We didn't let him, Rui says. Nobody do nothing. The squirrely son of a bitch came here on his own. And so they start calling out for him. And so then uh, this other guy, the uh, guy who Russell, was too yeah. drunk, uh, mm-hmm. he found a cellar door. And so he's like, I'm not fucking going down there by myself so they're trying now they're you see, we see them becoming a team right like when it's too late when they've already lost one of their guys yeah and so they're now they're scrambling to kind of get it all together again and and really take it seriously and so this guy's like oh this is not smart someone else is like oh you know you don't take this shit seriously and but they find some fucking coffins and, right ruiz is like you got to be yanking my chain those are freaking coffins aren't they and we see the two coffins, and they have Some sisters. Yeah, yeah. Kat- Katerina and Annalise on the what is that called? It's like a relief Cor- on the coffin oh, or yeah. something. Yeah, sarcophagus. Oh yeah, yeah sure. I guess go. it yeah. would kind of be a sarcophagus. 
Yeah, and again, like this is all really creepy too. I love the lighting of that scene as mm-hmm. you see the flash, the yeah. beam of light from the flashlight is shining over this, you know, creepy coffin. Oh yeah, really well done for sure. And then we get chapter three. Uh, this is an amazing cover right here with Hecate Mignola version with um, she's over the statue. I like the little bat. Yeah, there's like a yeah. bat in there coming out of her hair. Her snake hair. I always love every time we get to see Hecate. Sure. Yeah. And again, these omnibuses, I, I always make sure to make a big gripe when they're not the full color. Um, but on these, we are getting the nice yeah. full color. It's very enjoyable. They're all creeped out. And then um, what's his face is telling them to calm down. It's just coffins. Coffins in a very spooky place. Right. Uh, but, you know, we've seen dead people before. It's it's cool. Let's go look for Simon. And then someone else is like, yeah, but what about oh, shouldn't yeah. we stay here and take care of this? He's like, yeah, well, we'll just stake him. Yeah. So I like how we've immediately jumped to everyone knows what to do with a vampire. Right. Right. Like, and before well, it was like, oh, what's going on here? And now everyone's like, oh, okay. Well, he well, says, what, what, so what's our job here? So I, get, I think that was the mission that they were there on. Is okay. You're going to go down there. And if you find anything, you're going to you're just going to kill then it. Why were they all playing stupid? Like, I don't know that creepy paranormal stuff happens. And now they're all like, oh, yeah, well, we're here to stake vampires. So let's just get it well, over with. Well, now it's kind of ramped up because Andrews disappeared. He never made it to the library. Right. And now they found his notebook it in this creepy like place. It seems like if you're sent on a mission, though out of the gate you have these stakes and these mallets and you know you're going to fight vampires but how probably, would you they probably didn't take it seriously until all yeah. this stuff started. Uh, just like you okay. said just like you said they didn't become a team until it was too late sure and so right. they were just like yeah we're in france on the government's dime this and that andrews right. was the only okay. one who took it seriously sure, sure. Yeah. so you know what i mean I, I think that just like you said earlier it's too late right it's too late that they're taking it seriously and yeah. now they're kind of like Oh, this is some real shit. Sure. You know what I mean? I guess these silver bullets and these stakes that they gave us, like, we're really going to have to use them. But I do like this moment where they're like, okay, everybody ready? Like, yeah. they're getting ready to do this. And so the two <laughs> guys pull over the thing, and Russell's getting ready to stake, but it's empty. There's nothing in there. Oh, I really like the look on um dude's face when they were trying to open the uh, lid, and it's just like that strain right so heavy because you know that's how it is i mean like you're moving shit that's heavy as fuck (laughs) so they open the coffins there's nobody in there and everyone's just like all right well that what a good joke you know whatever well we really were afraid and then yeah like oh do you hear something and then of course the very next panel is a full splash page of this guy getting torn to pieces and so this was the guy russell was the one that wanted to be transferred here he wanted to find weird shit and so I think that this is really ironic that this is the first thing that happens to him. He goes to light a cigarette and then all these monsters, these vampires just come out of the ground and immediately you can see that they're just tearing him up. It's fucking horrible. Yeah. Wow. And so things just start going crazy right away. We see that vampires are popping up out of everywhere, but they're popping up out of the ground. They were expecting two vampires to be in these coffins, but instead they're just coming up from the ground around them. And they have weird animal skulls. Yeah. Now. Well, they also seem to be dressed like the the waiters and the uh, party. right the party goers. Yeah. They're in kind of like that period style, and they got that same kind of wigs on, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. And so they just all start going crazy. They start shooting. Ruiz and Stegner try to make it out of there. We and got an appearance from the Vulcan Nine. Yeah, the yeah. Vulcan Nine. So Ruiz throws the grenades, and we see Vulcan on there, and we've seen those Vulcan grenades before. We saw Abe throw them in Hollow Earth, and then I believe Hellboy threw them in Conqueror Worm. And they start making it out of there, but then at the last minute, 
one of these flaming vampires, it gets Ruiz and it starts dragging him into the fire. And so he yells for Stegner to kill him. And it's kind of a flashback to that yeah. guy who was begging him to kill him in Normandy. And so that's kind of fucking messed up. Right. So like just in like a cup, the first like five pages of this issue, yeah, we've already geez. lost two of the guys. This is so messed up. Yeah. So well, you got the feeling that they were introduced to be killed. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, way. all the guys from the last story got killed. Sure. I mean, I'd be surprised when people make it through. <laughs> right yeah that is true yeah so stegner he escapes from the chateau and it's all on fire we see him run to the boat and that little guy is like what the fuck that yeah. little guy the boat driver and then they just drive off while the whole chateau the ruins of it are on fire and again you know the the art is really amazing you know it's we we're explaining this really quickly but it's like basically four pages of right. action and pacing I mean, it's just done really well, and it's really tragic, you know, this scene where Stegner has to kill yeah. his teammate. I actually uh, yeah. forgot about the whole Hecate thing, so when we turn the page, I'm like, oh yeah, this is going on, Yeah, because of all this fucked up shit that just happened. So now we, you know, we turn the page, and these, all these witches are now, uh, they all have ratty clothes, and they're they're very old now, and they're pouring yeah. blood out of skulls, it's pretty metal, yeah. and they're using the blood from the skulls to make these sigils in a big circle on the ground which is super cool and we also saw that in lost and gone forever yeah Yeah. remember we saw imagery very similar to that good stuff i gotta say i I love their control was able to pour this shit on the ground and have great it's impressive (laughs) they've been doing it for centuries oh yeah no i mean practice that skill you know what you know what you're doing And as they do this, they're continuing to call out to the Queen of Witches, Sovereign Ruler, Ally of Darkness, we call to you. Ooh, I wonder who it is. Yeah, <laughs> and um, all this continues to go on, and it's just really spectacular the way that they've paced this out. And we see this giant moment where and they're all gathered around the statue, and some of them are in the air, and some of them are these old witches, and other ones are still the period witches, and we've got the goats and all that in there. And we, we go back to our very Anne Rice moment over here with all the fancy vampires oh, in yeah. different factions <laughs> yeah. and stuff. And they're like, oh, we need to hear an answer for your actions. And it's very dramatic. And so Baron Koenig is saying, oh, you're you're mad at me for murdering men? Right. What the fuck are you thinking? They don't matter. And so all this stuff. And Is this know. how this holiest of nights yeah. is to transpire? Some little mouse finds his way into our mist, squeaks in your ear, and now you're angry with me? It's laughable. And so this guy's like, look, we had a deal. We were all going to disappear and we were going to wait for everyone to forget us. And then when, when we would come back, it would be on our terms and we would be all together and our, we'd be stronger. Well, when you think about it, I like that he says, when no one remembers how to fight us, that's yeah. when we'll. And that's the same thing they said on the Sleeping in the Dead. Yeah. That they were going to cause this apocalypse once everyone had forgotten I mean, it's about an effective vampires. method, yeah. you know, and I think that that's he's like, oh, but we all made this decision together and now you're going yeah. against the plan and. And Koenig's like, you know, what about Jurescu? He met with the humans, and to meet with them, to sit at the, the same table at them is laughable. You know, how can you chastise me? And they're like, well, Jurescu didn't leave bodies all over Europe. You know, he was clandestine about it. You know, it's simple. We agreed to wait, and you, half as old as my youngest wife, betrayed this agreement, one of them says. Okay, hold on a second before we go. When he says, like, Jurescu met with humans, you know, blah, blah, blah. I fucking hate that argument. It's that whole <laughs> argument of like, well, so-and-so did it, or you right. do it too. 
motherfucker, that doesn't make it right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Just because so and so does it doesn't mean you have carte blanche to do the exact same sure. shit. And we see uh, no, yeah, my, my rant is over. It's yeah, true. and we see Bond Moon. They do their version of that scene that we got in 1946, where Jurescu is meeting with Hitler. And so Koenig, he makes this whole speech, right? Why do they let the insects, you know, infect the house? We are vast. We shouldn't be servants to anyone. He makes this really and impassioned seen, uh, effort. These yeah, two world wars happened while we were waiting. All of Europe's on fire, and you know none of y'all had to flee your homes to escape the yeah, bombs. So I we, had to. We we get a sense yeah. of all that happened as well. And he even says it wasn't just Europe; it was Africa. Our kind is being tormented in all these different countries in Southeast Asia, and humanity's fucking up our whole thing, man. And those among you who march with me, he's trying to you know right. get people to <laughs> kind of be on his team and everyone just sort of looks at him like he's a fucking dumbass right he who he, will stand with me and, and everyone's just totally just crickets quiet, right say <laughs> and so this woman comes up to him this one uh woman in black and he's like i see you countess caucasy it doesn't even matter just say countess but i but the reason i bring that up is because i think we've heard that name before mm. i'll have to come back to that detail or maybe one of the listeners can clarify that for me but anyway she just slaps the shit out of him right <laughs> and then as this goes on they all slap the shit out of him they just keep coming <laughs> Coming up to him and they're just slapping him. him. It's really messed up. It's really weird too. And uh, and so he's you know I guess he's being shamed by all the other elites or whatever in this group. And meanwhile, this tribute to Hecate is still going on. And Simon starts reacting. Andrews is like something's wrong. He kind of falls to his knees. He's having a hard time, man. And they just continue to slap this Baron Koenig. And then the witches are getting more and more crazed and they're calling out to Hecate. And we get the sense that, you know, all this mist is kind of swirling around, you know, more violently. And then this one big guy, he comes over and he just slices Varen Koenig's neck. Yeah. So that's pretty messed up. They just kind of kill him there for what he did. And he just disintegrates. Dusts him. Yeah. I love how his rings just stay there in a little pile. Aubrey knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. And also, while all this is happening, Anders is just freaking out. Yeah. And then the next page, this huge splash page with Hecate is yeah. just fucking incredible. We get the culmination of this event where so Hecate finally great. appears to the witches and she's got all the snake hair and it just looks Against really the awesome. the stars and all the like smoke. It's yeah. super cool. Really beautiful. And we, get, we talked about this in The Storm and the Fury where Dave Stewart does just like a yeah, all green, yeah. you know, but it's got all these different shades in there. And it really has just a lot of, it's just very dynamic, you yeah. know, his yeah. use of color on this kind of page. And so I love this effect because this mist or whatever, it kind of engulfs everything. And then it kind of all sweeps up and just goes it away. It seems like that would be such a difficult thing to illustrate, yeah. but he does it yeah. perfectly. You know exactly what's happened. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's hard to describe it, but uh, yeah. looking at this page, just within four panels, you're like, oh, and it's all yes. gone. You know, and then it's just like this quiet, still you really night get the with impression. the Statue of Hecate. Yeah, so they've all kind of yeah. gone off into this, I don't know, they've been taken into another space. It kind of reminded me also of when we did the last story that Bond Moon were on, the Coffin Man, when that lady showed Hellboy where the Coffin Man's house was. Right. Yeah. And like yeah. a little spotlight came down world. showing the other yeah. world or whatever. The parallel dimension or whatever. But yeah, I um I really I dig this page because he, he really expressed what he wanted to express so perfectly. Really came across. Yeah. Really like that. And so yeah, like you said, it's all quiet now. Nothing's going on. Someone comes over to sweep up the dust and right. the rings. Right. The dust and the rings, yeah, this old woman. 
we cut back over to the bar. This is the bar that they were all drinking at, I guess, or maybe the hotel. No, we cut back to the hotel, I guess, where Stegner is at, and he's calling the professor. And the the steward at the uh, front desk has a cross around his neck. Oh, yeah. I didn't even notice that. And so did the boat driver. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, Margaret comes in to talk to the professor, but he's just totally quiet. She's like, is something wrong, Trevor? And he just says... They're dead, Margaret. They're all dead. So he thinks that everybody from the crew died. And we cut over to this plaque. And this plaque says, In honor of the extraordinary service above and beyond the call of duty in the year of our Lord, 1946, First Sergeant Dennis Mays. And Mays was the one who saved the rocket at the end of 1946. And then it also has the names of all the other guys that were on that team. So, yeah, they all died. It's like he lost one whole set of crew last year and then now another set, you know. He's got to get another plaque made. Oh, no. That's so wrong, Aubrey. Aubrey, wrong. No, that's funny. Chapter four and another amazing cover by Mignola showing Anders and the two vampires. We open on this really interesting scene where he's like kind of he's getting interviewed about right. what his, what his experience was like getting lost at sea and he talks about how you just drift hardly alive numb to hunger pain skin cooked no more water left to squeeze out any tears having constant hallucinations there's this kind of strange peace in it and you wait to die but you don't die you just keep on living. Well, I get the impression that he's in a therapist's office cuz right. there are degrees up on the wall. Oh yeah, you're so. right. Probably part of his, uh, after they found him, Uh he probably had to go through something like that. And then so we reveal that Margaret is kind of reading his file. And so, you know, the professor in her talk, because he's like, you know, you didn't want me to send these guys and you were trying to bring up all these reasons why it was okay, you know, to just leave it alone. But and now they're all dead. And she's like, well, to be honest, Trevor, right now I'm feeling sorry for you. I hope you can accept and understand that. Well, that's what he says is, I want you to know that I accept and understand your feelings, which is a really cool thing to say to someone, but she's kind of like, yeah, well, too fucking late, dog. Right. We cut over to that Lake Annecy, and we see Stegner there. He's and there's sit- some cute duckies. He's sitting on the bench. Yeah, there's some ducks. But all he's thinking about is Russell getting massacred shit, yeah. and Ruiz getting pulled into the fire. Having to kill him and all this stuff. And then there's this just this duck. I can hear this panel. Right. He's quacking. <laughs> It's and a very it's a very fucked up juxtaposition of like a peaceful time yeah. in the park versus all this messed up shit. And then all these cats start to come around right right and so there's like cats in the trees behind him and they're all kind of i like this one that's rubbing up against his leg that's really cute (laughs) i like this large boy in the foreground at the bottom the orange (laughs) yeah yeah absolute unit and um so he sees that crazy looking old woman again she was the one that he gave the coin to and he's like i've seen you before she says i know where your friend is the missing one you mistake him for dead. He lives. I tell you this because you were kind. She gives him this coin wrapped in paper. When he unwraps it, there's this old coin in there. And then it says, Austria. Brezina? It's the names of the vampire ladies. Yeah, Annalise yeah. Brezina, Katharina Brezina. Yeah, and so he's like, Simon's alive. And it's just the cat's left looking <laughs> at him. Well, was that old woman a cat? Yeah, maybe. Because she's got big old orange eyes. And then this one cat is left standing in front of him. Just looking at him. Yeah. Probably. Possibly. I like the image of the wrapped up coin in his hand. Yeah. That was really cool. So then we immediately cut to Broom and he's like freaking out, finding out, first of all, (laughs) that these guys are alive, but then also trying to figure out where Andrews is. And so he's there doing the research, telling him about Annalise and Katerina Brezina. 
I have their names. Can you hear me? And so he's like trying to talk to Stegner on the phone and Stegner's like, got it. I'm on a plane for Austria right now, professor. Call me as soon as you have any news on Andrews, anything, Broom says. And above all, come back alive, Jacob. Margaret leaves to go ring the Austrian consulate. And then the professor's just like, Vivara, you're here, aren't you? And so she's right there. Right. What is, I thought this is kind of interesting. Like she's just, yeah. she just kind of is able to come in and out or... She's, she's kind of oh sorry. I was gonna say I think she's kind of sort of like attached uh-huh. herself to him. Exactly what oh, I was gonna say. Oh wow, nice. yeah. Okay. Yeah, because she's like I'm here, and he goes always. I suppose they've formed this kind of a bond, right. according to her. Maybe like there's she's got some sort of attachment to him now. And she's like only with best intentions for you, Professor. Now you have stumbled upon Brazina sisters. Is easy for you, no? Finding just right kind of trouble. Imagine sisters in their time, how beautiful they must have been. Tell, what does Dusty Book say? And so Broom talks about how these sisters, they were just really like sadistic. Like they would take all these people who were trying to court them, prince or pauper, and they would bring them to bed and then just kill them. Perhaps they sought to control own fate. Perhaps they came to arrangement with darkness itself. And we see the two sisters with Koenig. Now they have Simon Anders. They have my agent, Broom says. And then we cut over to Hellboy. He's walking in and he's singing this song. I couldn't find a reference to this song. But he's singing. He says, when you get old and think you are sweet, take off your shoes and smell your feet. (laughs) It's one of those silly songs that kids sing, I guess. Yeah, I was trying to find what that little song was. It's so cute. And so he walks right past Margaret. She's too busy with all the phone calls dealing with the mission that he's able to just sneak right past her. And he goes right into the professor's room where he's talking to Vivara. But he doesn't see Vivara, right? He just right. sees the professor, the, his back talking. I like let's, let's be honest, he didn't really sneak. He just walked right he past her. Right, in. yeah, he didn't sneak. He doesn't know She just better. wasn't paying attention. He's like, Professor, can I have some pancakes? Aww, <laughs> so cute. And he's like, Hellboy, please, Margaret, no interruptions until we hear from Austria. And she's like, sorry, little bugger, got past me. Come on, Peanut. We're all very busy right now. And he, she like shuffles him out. Go entertain yourself, okay? And he kind of looks up at the sign of Professor Broom, and he's just like, hmm. I like that little panel where he's just kind of like looking at that thing. Well, it looks like he says, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, like yeah. he's just kind of <laughs> resigned to that little... F- I just think that's so sweet that he was trying to get Professor's attention. He wants some pancakes. Yeah. He's just a cute little guy. This is already the second time where he's kind yeah. of b- busted in on the professor. I really like this next moment. This is really cute where he's bored out there. And this one guy comes up. The first thing he asks him is, do you know how to make pancakes? And he's like, you're kidding me? I'm ace number one on pancake detail. See this patch right here? You guessed it. That's for making pancakes. (laughs) And little Hellboy's like, I don't believe you. Oh, yeah, come with me, kiddo. Very sweet. I like how people are nice to him. You know, they just treat him like a little boy, you know, for the most part. I also like where he says that... Oh, you're going fast there. Like, weirdly fast. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But th- that was a cute moment, and then we cut to this really super well, cute moment. Well, I like. I, I also like how. Um, I mean, if you remember, a lot of people either just ignore him or treat him like a nuisance in other books. Right. And he has a hard time making friends. There's no other kids there. It's all just grown ups, and so anyone that's nice to him, I just am very touched by that. Yeah, that's sweet. Anyway. 
And we cut over to him eating pancakes and reading his Lobster Johnson comics. So cute. It's a huge stack of pancakes. Yeah. So sweet. He's so happy. Like, that look on his face. Yeah. And these guys are talking about, like, some not child-friendly conversation. No, everyone's smoking cigarettes, and they all are drinking beer, and they're talking about naked ladies and But he's just totally absorbed. He's totally absorbed in his comic book here. It's very cute. And the lobster is fighting a version of the Black Flame. Did you notice that? Awesome. Yeah. I did notice it that. It kind of looks like the Black Flame there. No, it's it's super cute. And we cut back to Anders, I guess, in this therapy session, and he talks about all the horrible stuff that he had to go through while he was stranded in this boat. You catch algae by dragging your shirt behind your boat, and you just eat whatever's on it. And, and then occasionally was... you catch a fish, and you just eat it. And he's... Eat it raw, yeah. Just like eat the whole thing, all the eyeballs and guts and everything, the scales. Yeah. And talking about licking the, uh, the dew off the boat before right. the uh, sun comes up, because yeah. that's going to be your only water of the day. Yeah. Yeah, so this is all really horrific, and he's just like further explains the background of this character and where he's coming from. And we reveal that he's with the two vampires, right, with those two ladies, Annalise and Katerina. They've got him in this bed, and it looks like he's been bitten on his neck. Yeah. And his, his pose from the boat to the bed is almost the same. Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. that's a great detail. We cut over to Austria, and Stegner is there with a troop, and they're going into where they think Andrews is. So, you know, while Andrews is trapped in this vision or whatever, you know, they're going in there, and we see Stegner kind of break through the door. And, and it was all a glamour. These, yeah. The vampire leaders yeah. are these horrible monster things, and it's, and it's all ratty and old and gross. Yeah, and the bed is all old and gross and everything, and they've, they've just got Anders there. This reveal is really awesome. Yeah. I, I love that. Oh, yeah. um, that further explains how fanciful like everything yeah. looked in those previous issues. Um, there's an awesome action beat between Stegner and his soldiers, and then the two vampire ladies. And so they just launch at them, right? And yeah. then so it's really awesome. They have to shoot them. They've got the crosses, and the crosses are effective at holding them at bay while Stegner goes and stakes one of them. Jeez. And again, just really good action beats here. Yeah. And so it's like three pages of action, and then at the end of it, you can see that they've gotten them pretty good. One of them is like pinned to the wall. <laughs> with all these stakes. With all these stakes in it. It's and really there's, crazy. And there's, I guess, yeah. like a voiceover, if that's what you could call it, of uh, he's still in that therapy session, still describing what was happening yeah. in the boat, yeah. which I think is really cool and effective thing. It's it's very cinematic when yeah. he says... Because he's talking about uh, the the guys that find you and pull right. you, and pull your boat in back yeah. to civilization, and they save your life. He's saying they save your life; they really do. But no matter what happens, no matter what they do to get you back to being healthy, you'll never ever again feel as strong as you did before you got stranded out on that ocean. Yeah, so, so we that's such a fucking. So he's already been through that, yeah. and then now he's kind of been through this too, because this is kind of mirroring something. You know, him being yeah. glamored by these vampires is almost like, and they're just sucking the blood out of him. Yeah, and this yeah. image it's we've got like, of him is bite marks all over his body, right. and he's you know, and also like, is he gonna? become like a vampire monster right, thing now yeah. too. And and, and and I really like how glad you brought this up because the way it's layered, you know, him talking about how his countrymen saved him and all this kind of stuff is paired with the this soldiers actually coming in and him, actually yeah. saving him. Yeah. And that's really well done. It's very um it's a very dramatic read when you're kind of going through it the yeah. first time. Yeah. We cut over to the professor and Margaret and they find out that he's alive, right? And he's pretty excited about that. It's unreal. I got to tell you, Prof, this job, he needs medical assistance immediately here in Austria. 
And so the professor's like, no, you've got to bring him here to the headquarters. But Stegner doesn't think that they have time to do that. And so Broom is, again, you have your orders, return stateside immediately. So Broom knows that whatever's happened to Anders, medical help's not going to help him. And he's got to call someone in and get someone over here who knows what they're doing. And then out the window, we see Hellboy playing with Mac. Yeah, he's playing with Mac and reenacting baseball. He says... That's the hit from Robinson the Dodgers have been waiting for. And so he's referring here to Jackie Robinson, who was an American professional baseball player who was the first African-American to break the baseball color line when the Brooklyn Dodgers started him at first base on April 15th, 1947. So this year um, that this story takes place is where when Jackie Robinson started with the Dodgers and I... I think like that's really interesting that Hellboy kind of identifies yeah, with that character sure. because yeah. that character is kind of an outsider at the time and well, Hellboy that character is, is a guy. Well, I mean, yeah, that <laughs> baseball player was kind of an outsider at the time because he was breaking the color line yeah. and Hellboy also is very different and yeah. I wonder if he kind of is starting to notice that he's, you know, not like everybody else. Yeah, and I like the boom that we get when he throws the ball. Yeah, I wish that he had thrown it with the right hand so we could count it. You know, I kind of want to count that one anyway, but it's clearly he's throwing with his left hand. And then Mac is catching the ball. Yeah, I was going to say I really like how it bounces off and he catches it. It reminds me of playing with my dog Jake. Yeah, Yeah, he loves catching that ball. And then Hellboy is, he's just a cute little boy. He's like, oh, wow, look at that. And like a plane's taking off. Right. He's not thinking about like... The implications behind a war plane taking right. off. It's just like, cool, a plane. Yeah, exactly. And he, him and Mac are like watching it, fascinated, and then Broom is looking out the window watching Hellboy. Right, kind of, yeah. It's, it's really interesting, moment. yeah. Chapter 5, another great cover by Mignola on this one. And we see the plane landing 62 hours after the rescue of BPRD field agent Simon Anders. This black limo pulls up, and so we are introduced to Mr. Otabenga. And so this uh, old man, he gets out of the cab, and Broom meets him. And has apparently known Broom since he was a child, right? I guess. And so they go inside, and uh, he's like, you look tired. Yes, well, it's been a hard week, Broom says. Thank you for coming at such short notice. I know the trip couldn't have been pleasant. And so behind Broom, Oda Benga sees Hellboy and Mac. And he just says, I go where I'm needed. Is this all for you, this base? No, no, I'm afraid not. And so Broom kind of explains to him that, you know, he tries to kind of minimize what they really have. But Oda Benga's like, you know, what you started here, Trevor, your uncle must be very proud. And so, yeah, we get the sense that they have this history. And, you know, Broom is starting up the BPRD for the first time. So... You know, it's all starting to kind of come together. He introduces Benga to Margaret, and he asks for a glass of water. And Broom's like, maybe when you're finished, you'd like to meet the boy. And he says, no, Trevor, I've seen enough demons in my time. Rude. Yeah. Rude. So we already get a sense of where this character's coming from. And so they bring him into the hospital room where Anders is, and we see Stegner is sitting there in the background. I like that Stegner is hanging out, like his friend is still kind of watching over him. And so Odabenga examines him and we see that he's got like all these band-aids all over him, all over his body. And he looks pretty pale. You were right to send for me, Benga says. I will do what I can. And then Margaret comes up and he's like, you are angry with him. You should not be. This man's sacrifice was for a good cause. So he's saying that he can tell that Margaret's angry with Broom. Yeah. Right? Mm. 
because she didn't want this mission at all to begin with. And Stegner's kind of like, sacrifice? What do you mean sacrifice? He's not dead. I don't like this. I told you, Simon should be in a goddamn hospital. And so Broom's like, quiet. Would you like me to clear the room? And Venga says, if your people are going to fight, then they should see. They should understand what they're fighting. And he takes out this set of beads. And we're going to kind of see these a little bit more. But one thing I noticed is Venga's prayer beads, they're not typical rosary or malas. They contain symbols of multiple beliefs. It's got a bunch of different charms and yeah. stuff on it. You know, when he says they have to understand what they're fighting, Stegner's like, we've seen plenty. And we get a flashback to when all those vampires came out of the ground. He's like, we lost some good men over there. And then so, you know, Broom just shuts him up. He's like, that's enough. And they let Benga begin what, you know, his ceremony that he's going to do. This guy is still kind of in the... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, 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 you. (laughs) When you turn the page, it's apparent that this guy is still in the else world. There's kind of a... Oh, yeah. A, an overlay to this reality that's kind of in an alt, like a, yeah. a concurrent reality where Ota Benga is saying this incantation, this prayer, whatever it is, and uh, you kind of cut to he's lying in the hospital bed, but he's also still lying in the bed with, with the, these vampire yeah. sisters, and they're kind of over him hissing. And Ota Benga is there in another form. Yeah. So he's both yeah. in. This reality that everyone else is occupying with right. Dr. Broom, uh, Professor Broom and everybody, but he's also now entered the alternate reality that's transposed just right. above yeah. the one yeah. that they're. And so it's he's younger. He's got like a a robe on. He's got like a flaming sword, and he's still saying this thing like right. ah, turn back evil upon my foes and cast them out and all this stuff. And he's also right. standing up straight. Sure, yeah, yeah. And, uh, so he's got this flaming sword, and now the. Vampire sisters are like climbing the wall. They're all hissing and shit. And it's just fucking dramatic as hell. Yeah. And he mentions Durga. And Durga, meaning the inaccessible or invincible, is the most popular incarnation of Devi and one of the main forms of the goddess Shakti in the Hindu pantheon. And Durga is known to fight demonic forces. He also mentions Spear of Marduk. That's Babylonian or Mesopotamian god. He mentions Indra's arrow, which is from Hinduism. Baal Hadad is from the Bible. And then he even says... Well, you know, Solomon, too. Yeah, where he says, Lofaham, Solomon. And then he says these other words that I'm not going to try to pronounce. This is an actual spell called yeah. the Banishment of Demons. This is a spell for ending personal, family, or business relationship that you no longer wish to be in. And it's a fire spell. So I thought that was really interesting. He also mentions Greek gods. Utu Shamash and Anu in his court from heaven are Sumerian gods. Saint Michael Protector is from the Bible. And then he also mentions Druj, which are Indian Persian demons. And so I like how it's drawing from all these different elements of religion and folklore. And it's not just like, jesus christ or whatever you know which is typically what you would get for a character like this i like that it it it, it kind of brings it all together this kind of you know what kind of what manolo has been doing where he mishmashes all these different folklores together i really enjoy that and i like this pairing of alta benga with these beads in the real world and then in the this other reality like you said um, yeah, so it's really good. And then in the middle of all this, Hellboy pops in again. Professor, will you play baseball with me? Aww. And he's got his little ball and the mitt or whatever. And he's like, not now, outside. Aww. 
And so he's like, when? And they, cl- they slam the door on him. Meanwhile, this crazy shit is going on. Man, I love a little Hellboy. Poor sweetie. Yeah, and so this is, just like you said, Daniel, this is very dramatic. And Otabenga, he is calling on all these different parts of religion from various different faiths and ethnicities to banish these vampires. And his hood gets kind of blown back by all this swirling right. motion of what's going on. And he's he's very, like a very, young man. Yeah. And it's very, very dramatic reveal. Very, yeah. <laughs> and so he's saying this very... You know, super dramatic thing, this little monologue of hearken and tremble and fear, all this shit. And so they're like, oh, no. Oh. Right. It feels like they've been doing that for a while. They're just like, oh, no. And, and well, it's it's funny because when we cut over to the next page, Stegner's like, how much more of this? Mm-hmm. No, I'm serious. I'm the same What's thing. he doing over there? <laughs> Simon needs a doctor, not this. So and from their us. perspective, they're yeah. just seeing this old man rattle on and on saying <laughs> all these different things of different religions that don't even go together he's kind of just mumbling and then like in the other reality it's, it's like this yes <laughs> and poor hellboy is just kind of sitting on this he's stoop. sulking yeah, yeah. Oh, sweetie. you know as this goes on benga in his alternate form with the flaming sword he is able to push these two vampires back into this room right and he's trying to get them to go into this door but as they're going they're saying this man is ours we will never leave but he just keeps forcing them back with his power and they're like even when he is worms dry bones he will never be rid of us never and so they finally benga is able to shut them into this door in this alternate reality and then as he shuts the door he like kind of puts this symbol on it yeah he carves like the sigil in there with this flaming sword like you would with a lightsaber i right, guess he's kind yeah. of writing the sigil he kind of makes this brand on it and so we just see that there and then you see in the uh, real world his hand is putting the same symbol on his chest on his chest oh yeah, yeah on anders cool. yeah it's the door to his heart aubrey oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah so then the door is left shut and then we also see anders he's got the same symbol on his chest and benga says it's done and Stegner's just like, I thought you said I was going to see something. I didn't see anything. And then yeah. we just get this one panel where Begna's like, you idiot. <laughs> Broom is saying bye to Benga and he's thanking him for his service. And we get this picture. And I guess this is Benga with Broom's uncle. And then this little kid is Broom. Oh, I guess so. Right? Because he mentioned that he knew right. his uncle. Well, Otobanga says, oh, you didn't want to call me. And he's like, uh, no, I didn't. Using the supernatural to, to combat the supernatural is a slippery slope or whatever. And so. Yeah. Well, he says it's true. Yeah. And you do well to remember that, Trevor. And we see Vivara sitting She didn't on like his that desk. at all. Yeah. But it's also like. He's talking about her or yeah. the demon or whatever. He's just like you all said, he's paired himself in some way with this demon. And so he's also doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, I must be honest with you. The ritual was not entirely successful. I could not drive the demons out. They are strong and their hooks are in too deep. The best I could do was lock them away inside your man. But I don't know how long that door will hold. Maybe a year, maybe 20 years. And we see that door with the symbol on it and we just hear boom, boom, boom as they're banging on it. I just don't know. I'm sorry. And so Broom says, well, what does this mean for Anders? It means you should kill him, Benga says. (laughs) That doesn't sound like a priest talking, Broom says. Your uncle said almost that very thing the last time we spoke. It's been a very long time since I wore that collar. And you know what I've learned since then, since the beginning of the world? A prayer is a prayer and a curse is a curse, no matter the people, no matter the language. Man has given a thousand different names to his God, 
but to look into the face of each one long enough, hard enough, you will find one truth. And so I like that. That kind of yeah, is kind of that kind of goes in line with his power and how he used these um these these prayer beads or whatever with all these different symbols. And um we see all these statues and I want to say this statue that it focuses in on with the sword. I want to say we've seen that statue before. I don't know. This man with the sword. Anyway, listeners tell us where we've seen that statue. Hmm. You need to discover that for yourself if you're going to succeed here, Benga tells Broom. And you need to know your enemy, for he has 10,000 different faces. Sometimes he will roar like a lion, but other times whisper like a dove. Never forget it's a war, Trevor. You would do well not to try to take prisoners. I can't kill him, you know, Agent Anders, Broom says. I know, Benga says. But I tell you this, in this thing we are not given many gifts. We should seize them when they come. The devil lands on your doorstep, weak, bears its throat. You should cut it. It cuts over to Hellboy playing with Mac. And when it says you should cut it, Mac's licking little Hellboy. I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition there. And he says, you may not get another opportunity. And so we cut over to Anders and we can see that he's recovering and doing better. Stegner and Margaret and him are all talking and laughing. But I feel like here, Benga is trying to tell them about Hellboy too, right? He's like saying, look, if you've got... If you've got him as a little kid, you know, you could kill him right now. He's being a total dick. And so Broom just goes out to go play baseball with Hellboy. How about a game of catch? Super cute. Yeah. And so we see them playing. And so it's kind of like. Little Hellboy's running and smiling. And they're playing together. It's very sweet. And I kind of feel like that's his answer. Yes. To what Benga's saying. Benga's saying, you should, you know, cut its throat. And then he goes out to play ball with of it. Course. So I, I just really love that message. And it's such a cute little ending to this story. Hellboy looks so happy yeah, on this it, last panel as uh, Benga drives off. Yes. And that yeah. that last panel wouldn't have had that same impact if we hadn't seen little Hellboy being ignored and neglected and all this stuff. And at, I mean, but at least in the middle of the story, we got like a, a nice random soldier who gave him a stack of pancakes and a comic book to read. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like... I think that that's that's really sweet. Maybe, hey, I wonder if that's like where he started reading Lobster Johnson comics. That guy gave him pancakes in a a comic book, you know, like so he gets a little bit of kindness. He gets a little bit of attention. But what he really wants is to play with Professor Broom and because that's like his dad. And so at the very end of the story, seeing that it has that happy ending, like even though we've seen all this fucked up, heavy, intense shit for the whole story, having this nice ending, like even though we know you know, Professor Broom's going to die this horrible death and then Hellboy's going to go on to do it. But having this moment in time, that's what really matters. Right. Is no matter what else happens, this thing also still happened. And so you could focus on the dark, horrible, negative things or you could choose to focus on good things are also happening. And so I think that that's, that for me was the takeaway. Yeah, I, I, really, I really like, like that. that. Yeah. Well, okay, so uh, when he was saying all that stuff with Trevor about, um, oh, I'm sorry, Professor Bloom, uh, Broom, not Bloom. That stupid fucking Just poster yesterday. Say it, say oh yeah. <laughs> you can say it over again if you want. No, it's fine. Um, do you remember when um, Hellboy first popped up in um, 1945, and that one guy was like, "We should kill it." Right. Um, there was a Frost. Yeah, Malcolm Frost. Yeah, yeah. good job there. He and, said it's a demon come from hell. And then, like, we got that later story where he's like, you know, I, I, he was meeting with his like son. He's like, I hope yeah. you understand that my dad was just afraid. Right. And so I'm getting the same kind of feeling from this guy, and that he's just like, you know, he he all he sees is a demon. You know, he may be a cute little baby, but he's gonna grow up to be a demon. Right. And so he's like, when he's saying like 
when you have this opportunity thrown into your lap, you know, slit his throat. But I think Professor is like, well, I have this opportunity thrown in my lap. I'm going to go play ball with him. Yeah. All right. I'm going to try and foster yeah. something positive. Yes, yeah. and absolutely. So, and that so, is an opportunity as well. Yeah. And I don't know. I thought it was really sweet. And I loved him playing ball together. And I got to say, I fucking love, love, love little baby yeah I whenever mean, they show him so adorable it, it i just every time i see him and, his, and he's smiling i get filled with joy and happiness so i love little hellboy well, and, and we know his adult you know yeah. adventures are very kind of sad and yeah. very yeah. intense and so it's nice to know that he had like you know somewhat of a good upbringing yeah. people yeah. cared about him and treated him like a little kid and it, it is good to break up sort of the grim reality of these books is this this little hellboy this bright sunny this yeah. you know this really cute little guy a ray of sunshine right. in an otherwise grim world yeah and so there's a great sketchbook section for this story where you see bond moon doing the different character designs and they talk about they did a lot of research into the different uniforms that they would wear but Mike made it clear that these men should not look like a team with a unique uniform, nor would they wear their army clothes. They shouldn't look like soldiers. I tried to include some similar elements in all of them, but to keep different looks for each of them. And they also talk about Anders. Fabio Moon said, It was important that Simon look very familiar in both of our art styles. That's one reason why he has such strong features. So they wanted to make sure that no matter who was drawing him, that we really knew that who Anders was because they really wanted to develop that character. Fabio Moon said, When I first drew Katerina, Mike said that she was too sexy for the time and the place, so we included a sweater on top of her dress. When they got to the castle, I had more fun with both girls and tried to make them similar enough to be sisters, but different enough so readers would not get confused. Yeah, and we get some great Mignola sketches of that poster on the cover of issue two, we get sketches of the Hecate statue. We also get those beads. Yeah, here are the beads. So we see there's an Egyptian nefer, a flat amulet, owl, scarab beetle, scorpion. There's an ankh, eye of Ra. And there are these round amulets. And one of them kind of looks like that Bishop Zrini's button that they used on in the Chapel of Moloch. And then in the corner right here, it says that that symbol... Mignola said something like this for the symbol on the door and Simon's chest, Cheth from Hebrew alphabet. And so that symbol kind of resembles that Hebrew alphabet character, but it doesn't quite look like that because I looked it up online. It looks more like an N. But yeah, and we see all the different sketches of all the stuff that Broom had. Yeah, really awesome. I think you had mentioned this, Danielle. One of these kind of looks like that knife, right? Well, a little bit, but then I guess that doesn't track. Right. So. He's talking about uh, he based uh, Margaret's design a little bit on Vivian Lee and photographs of the time in the post-war era. Oh, yeah. And so I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, very cool. Oh, join Hellboy, the burden, dream or nightmare? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. And it's really worth taking a look at the sketchbook section if you have access to that. There's a lot of, they go really in-depth on Fabio Moon and Gabriel Ba's sketches and their page layouts and everything. So there's a lot of really good stuff to check out there. So yeah, this has been really great. I've been loving this, these 1940s stories with the BPRD. We'll get more of this next week. And now Aubrey's going to say all the things. 
All right, everybody. Share us your thoughts on BPRD 1947. You can send us your feedback at hellboybookclub at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. And you can find the Discord link on our Facebook page. And be sure to check out our friends at Manilaverse.com who are doing wonderful things over there all the time. And we also want to say thanks to Paul from Gardahan for the lovely theme, as always. We always love it. Super good. You can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pod, wherever you get your podcast from. Uh, next week, we are going to be talking about the BPRD 1948, and we're also going to have seen the movie. And yeah, we might say talk a little bit about that, but the episode's not going to be about the movie. So pull out your back issues, pull out your trades, go to the library. Don't get caught by vampires. Uh, <laughs> maybe you want to use the app instead. Get the digitals on Comicsology or or darkhorse.com and join us along next time on the Hellboy Book Club podcast. Thanks a lot for listening everybody. I'm John Salinas and I'm Danielle and I'm Aubrey Loveless saying tired of bumping gums. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>